You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Mariner's Pod. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it as always. This is going to be a fun one. You'll really enjoy this podcast. Here's what's coming up. Of course, the Mariners take on the Texas Rangers coming up after the athletic series got postponed. Mariners back at it. First of four tonight. 6-10 first pitch tonight. 6-10 Saturday. 1-10 Sunday. And then 1-10 on a holiday Monday before the Mariners hit the road for a five-game series. Mariners will make up the games with the athletics coming up. Some double headers on the horizon to make up for things. So... We can look forward to that coming up, including what was an off day. Now when the Mariners come back from the next road trip, they'll play a double dip against the A's on the 14th. So those games will be made up. Uh, So in this podcast, we don't have any games to talk about. We're going to have some fun conversation. We're going to talk to Hugh Quattlebaum, who's been on the Mariners staff this season. He's been part of the Mariners organization the last couple of years focused on the minor leagues, but he's been with the major league club this year. We're going to have a very interesting conversation with Hugh, not only about hitting, but he has uh, one of the most unique backgrounds, I guess I'll say it for a coach, including screenwriting. So we'll talk about that coming up. Also one of our favorites, Jason Churchill prospect insider will be here. We're going to talk some trade deadline. We haven't had him on this season at all uh, since play started, so he'll give us some of his impressions about what he has seen, including Kyle Lewis and Justin Dunn and Justice Sheffield. So really good stuff as always. Uh, Jason Churchill, always a great conversation. So that will come up in a few minutes as well. Let's start with Hugh, though. Get his thoughts on hitting and screenwriting and everything else. Well, Hugh, I want to start with this. I, I guess you're doing something uh, a little different than you expected to when this season started and we started spring training. So how's this year gone for you so far? Yeah, that, it did all kind of happen in a blur. Um, you know, at the 11th hour there uh, with, with Tim Laker not being able to be involved. And, um, you know, I, I know Tim really wanted to be involved and it sort of was kind of bittersweet. And it's obviously a great opportunity to help help with the big league level the good news is is tim has been really involved with everything we've done in the minor league level and i've been very connected with him and with jared to Hart, who jared is kind of the the engine of of the offensive um operation right now and he and tim are very connected so we've you know between i think it's relatively rare that the minor league group is as connected to the big league group as we have been and that's a huge credit to tim laker for you know, he came down to the Dominican in the off season and spent spent a week down there with some of our really young guys. He helped us with um, one of our off season kind of swing development camps and was there every day, kind of grinding with us with our minor league guys. So, and then you know, connecting with him in spring training over the last couple of years, I it's just he's such a great guy. You know, they had, he and JD had set up you know pretty good infrastructure for what we've been wanting to do in the big leagues a lot of that's carried down to the minor league so there was a lot of continuity already so that that was helpful and then he's been really helpful kind of getting me up to speed on on the guys you know in the big leagues that I haven't been as connected with so and you know we've all been kind of thrown in this bubble or not bubble but um this world 
pretty closely. Um, so I'm getting to know guys fast, the guys that I haven't known as well. Um, and obviously we got a lot of guys coming up from the minors getting their, their more time now in the big league. So I, I've known those guys for a while. So I'm starting to get really comfortable with the majority of the group. And, and but again, uh, Tim has been hugely helpful. And then, um, and JD and I worked really closely, JD being Jared DeHart, you know, last year as he was, he was kind of floating from the big leagues to the minor leagues. So we've, we've had a really good relationship for a while. Um, so really, I mean, there's a lot of things about a transition like this that would be very, very tricky. And it has, those things have gone by the wayside and have not been tricky because of um, the relationship that was already there. Well, you have a really interesting story. You have to tell us how you go from screenwriting to where you are now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I've, I've got I've filled my way through a, a good chunk of stuff. So I think that's why baseball and I are, are a decent mix. Um, but yeah, I tried, tried hacking away in the minors for some years out of college. Um, that didn't go well. And then I uh, went right into screenwriting. Long story short, one of my roommates from college was in film school at USC while I was running around the minors. And I was always very intrigued by what he was doing. We, we kept in close touch. He was hacking away solo. It's, it is a lot easier to have a writing partner just to co-motivate, to get up and actually write every day to make some progress. I was following his progress and had some ideas on stuff that, you know, scripts and, and stuff that we kind of shared a mutual interest in. So when I finished up playing, I moved right out to LA. And then I had had an idea that he was intrigued by and he didn't obviously want to just steal the idea and write it on his own. So he, he, he wore it by having to pick up, I was, I was a few years behind him on how to write a script and being good at writing a script. So he, he tolerated my cluelessness and, and we started writing together and, you know, eventually we got, we, we got better together, wrote a couple scripts that got, got some attention. The one was uh, the one that he liked originally was called the church of Bob about a guy who they were tearing down his, his house, this kind of frat life house that he was living in on the beach. And uh, he, he wanted to keep it. And he saw, looked across the street and there was a church. He's like, why aren't they tearing down the church? Cause they were building the hotel. And they said, it's a house of worship, city ordinance. We can't touch it. So he creates his own religion. He's this fun loving frat guy. We had Galifianakis attached at one point and then that dropped off. We, we kind of were in the game with that one. I got us some rewrite opportunities, but we, we never, we never got through the door. A lot of those rewrite opportunities died before we actually would get the opportunity to get paid for writing them. I was doing hitting lessons on the side to, to pay, pay rent and pay bills and relative to baseball though, the, the, the most interesting part of it all at the, at the tail end, I was giving lessons uh, and one of my clients, dad was a lawyer for Ron Shelton and Ron is the writer for uh, Bull Durham, Tin Cup, White Men Can't Jump. And he had just then um, sold the show to TBS. It was basically a triple A. It was Bull Durham for TV. It was going to be called Swamp Dogs. And my, the dad who of the kid, it was a, his lawyer was like, I got to get you a meeting with him. He set it up, met with, you know, met with Ron Shelton, actually had me write a sample for the show. Uh, met with him and he was he, he was all fired up um, to have somebody who actually played in the minors and he liked the sample and that was probably going to be the direction my life would have gone but then TBS did not send it to series huh. uh, they shot the pilot at that New Orleans Zephyr Stadium um, it was great it really would have been for those that love Bull Durham it would have been the TV version of Bull Durham and, um, and TBS picked a different show to send the series that that season and it kind of it kind of died. He kept in touch a little bit after that. Um, HBO was interested, and and the, 
again. I'm still, I'm shocked like the MLB network never had an interest in kind of original script content and they never jumped on it and it's kind of died. And that, that's when that kind of died, <laughs> that was the, kind of the end of my, my writing run. I was like, well, this, if this can't make it, I don't know where I'm going to find a, an entryway into this. So the baseball stuff was starting to pick up and my, my family moved to Atlanta and this job with the Mariners opened up and, um, that's that's where I am now. So it might be a longer-winded answer than you want, but I, I I'll tell you some about some of the misfired script ideas we had too at another time. But we had some we had some off the wall that might be part of the reason we never really hit hit gold. So uh, that's great. Well, you you mentioned your time as a player too. Uh, how much has hitting changed and the information changed from the your playing days to what you're doing now? Yeah, um, information's changed a ton, obviously, and and that's you know, on the end I am now, especially with the minor leagues and making decisions on what kind of technology we want to bring in and, and use and, and value um, the amount of technology that's available now, obviously we have none of it. And now you can measure what the bat's doing in space. You can measure everything that the ball does. You can measure everything your body's doing with motion sensors. And um, a lot of it is really helpful. Um, it's, it is tough to curate the ones that are the most helpful so, you know, that's been a process. I think, you know, everybody's kind of caught up on, there was a wave there for a little bit. We've, we've kind of narrowed down the things that we feel like are the most helpful. Um, and, and it, those are huge resources that, that we didn't have. If you, if you don't really, like we were operating in kind of an abyss of mm. not even really knowing, getting enough information from the games to know your game trends. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not even sure I knew whether I hit the ball more opposite field or to the pull side, um, other than just kind of doing the math in my head. So that, that, that stuff, none of that's a mystery anymore. So if you're not making informed decisions these days, then shame on you. So, and we, you know, we're trying to make our whole model, the model off of, you know, what, what's, what are the results in the game, work backwards from the game and then use the technology to validate what we're seeing with what's happening in the game and what you're seeing with your eyes and, does it validate what you're seeing with your eyes? Okay. Can it, can it be used with the player to be more evidence that a potential change is worth considering all those things. So that's, that's, that's very different in terms of kind of where the game has gone. You know, I, I, I interestingly, I, I actually, from my hometown was Walt Hereniak and um, from any of the old school baseball fans, remember Walt, he was the, the Red Sox hitting coach for years. He was there in 86 when the ball went through Buck, Buckner's legs and big Charlie Lau. Um, I wouldn't call him a disciple. I mean, they were more, you know, partners, I guess, or whatever, but uh, he was from my hometown. Walt was, and he was kind of the first, uh, you know, really known hitting coach that I ever got connected with and I connected with him in a couple off seasons because he was still coaching a little and Tony LaRusso was having him come to help at some of their spring trainings and he wanted to get his arm in shape so he knew I, he was looking I must have looked in the yellow pages to see who was in the minor leagues in the area and he found me um, so I got to hit with him which was a huge thrill for me at the time but he was the you know the kind of the prototype old old school hitting guy very very down to the ball um you know, I, I remember he, he talked a lot about working with Jordan because he was the guy that kind of shaped Michael Jordan's swing. And you could see, I, mean, I was watching the documentary when The Last Dance and they showed the baseball clips, like it was a total flashback to everything Walt had taught me about the swing. And so I went into this job kind of knowing how much that worked at the big league level for Walt and seeing I had some success with some of it myself, but also 
feel like I took a lot of it too far and kind of became a good example of when you, you know, you're thinking too downward to the ball, the, the negative aspects of that, that can happen. And then obviously there's been this revolution recently and everybody teaching the dead opposite of that, that that was all dead wrong, that Ted Williams was right and trying to, you know, swing a little more upward. And I, I guess my answer on everything to sum up uh, and not be too long winded here is that it, the answer is always somewhere in between. There's, there's players that, that the way their body moves, a downward think, you know, thought is really beneficial to them. They're players that benefit from, they were, you know, like me, I was probably got a little too downward. So I would have been, I would have benefited from getting back into more of a golf swing feel or trying to elevate feel. So there's no right answer. It's always, it's always somewhere in the middle. And that's the same with, you know, mechanics. But I think what's helped me is seeing both ends of the spectrum. Um, I was in the private world when the private world was kind of exploding on launch angle stuff. And I, I, paid a lot of attention to it. I thought some of it had value because it, it probably worked with me personally, but at the same time, I knew that there was other methods that worked. And I knew that there were thousands of successful, probably the majority of major leaguers that have been successful were not thinking about trying to elevate the baseball. Um, the pitching, especially now is so different. So I think, you know, kind of being somebody that's experienced both ends of that spectrum and being in the middle has, has been beneficial in that um, I can kind of go and, multiple directions. I'm not beholden to one kind of pattern of swinging and you can lose a lot of guys that way because it really does break down on an individual level of what, what's going to work best for guys. Kyle Lewis, for example, right now is, is not trying to elevate the baseball. The thought that works best for him is being a little more direct and down and the way his body works, that lines up really well for him to have a path that's, that's through the zone for a, you know, a longer amount of time. So and that's your end goal is to be in the hitting zone for a long amount of time. So you have a lot of margin for error, how guys, whatever guys think to get there, um, you know, a lot of different thoughts can work to, to achieve that same end. So, so anyways, that's, that's kind of the history of how I ended up in that middle ground. And it's, it is, it really mechanics. Like you want to, you want to get off your backside, but you don't want to crash forward. You want to, you know, you want to make sure you stay back and can see the ball, but you don't want to get stuck back. You want to be, uh, direct to the ball, but you don't want to chop wood. You need want to get the ball in the air, but you don't want to drop it. Fly. Like everything ends up in the middle. So that that about sums it up of, of where I'm at on all things hitting. Well, Hugh, this is really great. It was great to get to know you a little bit. We're going to have to do this. Uh, we did, there wasn't enough time. We're going to have to do this again. But yeah, anytime for sure. A really fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed that. And we go from one great conversation to another. Jason Churchill at Prospect Insider on Twitter. Uh, he has a podcast going as well that you should check out, Baseball Things. You can find it on his uh, home Twitter page as well. So here's our conversation with Jason Churchill. Well, Church, it's great to chat again. It's been a while. The, the time, it couldn't be better. You know, I was not sure what to expect during this trading deadline. I thought it would be kind of quiet, and I was wrong. It was not quiet. What are your general takeaway from what we saw at the trading deadline? I was surprised at just the one thing, and that was that the San Diego Padres were as aggressive as they were. I think, you know, the, the industry believed, hey, they're going to do something. And then the Mike Clevenger thing came up and, oh, they might be somewhat aggressive. And then they were really aggressive and they were really aggressive at catcher. And this is obviously where it involved the Seattle Mariners with, uh, with Austin Nola despite the fact that they have some young guys, uh, prospect Campusano, Luis Campusano coming up. He's one of their top five prospects. Um, 
They also have Francisco Mejia, who uh, came from the Indians a couple of years back, who they really, really like for the future. But they thought a lot more about 2020 and 2021 than I think anybody, at least at the beginning of the season and kind of coming into August, believed that they would be. Um, so that was fun to see, and it made for a really fun deadline, including for the Seattle Mariners. It really did. What was your takeaway from the Mariners Hall on deadline day? I, I, was, I was absolutely floored. I tweeted that too. I was like, I can't believe that Jerry DePoto turned Austin Nola, who was a minor league free agent, Dan Altavilla, who was a fifth round pick six years ago um, and out of options. And Austin Adams, who he got for what, 70 grand and Nick Wells, you know, last year into the package that, that, that he did with, with Ty France and, uh, and Taylor Trammell uh, kind of headlining that. I was blown away. I still am. Um, I woke up the next day thinking, did, did that happen? And, and that doesn't happen a lot because I'm usually prepared for, well, this is kind of the high end of what could happen here, and this is kind of the low end, and very rarely does it go on either side of that, and this time it absolutely did on the high end. What do you think of Trammell? I like him. I think there's a lot of risk there. Um, I, he kind of reminds me of Kyle Lewis in a way, and not that they're the same player because I, I think they're quite different, but – um, in the way that coming into kind of right now as the Mariners are acquiring him, there's a lot of risk there. There's some swing and miss. Uh, there's some issues with the swing that they're going to need to kind of smooth out. Uh, it's kind of gone back and forth between, hey, a line drive swing and one that might be able to produce more power. Um, so it, th there's, there's not as much probability there as with, say, a Jared Kelnick, for example, who's obviously the top prospect in the system, according to most. Um, you get a guy like Trammell, uh, Trammell, excuse me, uh, you toss him in the left field because that's probably where he belongs. And he's Jock Jones defensively with some upside. There's some upside with the power there. And if he can get to a point where he's hitting 260, 270, that's an everyday player. He can really run 65, 70 grade speed. I, I like Trammell quite a bit. Um, he, he does bring some risk. And, and I think that's, um, that's something that Jerry DePoto and his staff have done a really good job of. Hey, we want high probability guys. Mm -hmm. But you have to take a risk sometimes, you know, sometimes too. And, and when you do that, sometimes the payoff can be, can be pretty large. And I thought they took a, a pretty big risk with Edwin Diaz, who I still claim that, that was the best decision Jerry DePoto ever made as a general manager from his time with Seattle, even before Seattle, was saying, hey, in 2016, I guess it was, let's turn this guy into a reliever because they had the foresight to see kind of what was coming and it couldn't have worked out better, Right. Um, so I think they're very good at, at that kind of a thing. It's kind of, uh, you know, valuing the, the risk and, and the reward, um, and, and focusing a little bit more on the payoff and understanding, Hey, you know what? We could have just given up Austin Nola for very little, but then they go out and make the deal they did. And it's like, there's risk in Trammell, but there's not as much risk in Torrance and, 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 and Ty France. And th that was one of the big reasons why it was such kind of a blow away deal for me, uh, with the Padres and Austin Nola. You hit on something I think is pretty important when you talk about how they got Nola, how they developed him, same kind of thing with Adams. And, you know, Dylan Moore, I think, kind of fits into that same category as well. And I think about the Dodgers as a great example for all the resources that they have, as well as they've drafted, they still are able to find, you know, the Max Muncies of the world or the E.K. Hernandez. Justin Turner, yeah. Yeah, Justin Turner, you go down the list. I mean, teams have to do that to be good. They have to find guys and develop guys to be good. Yeah, and that might be the funnest part of the 2020 season, I think. And you mentioned Dylan Moore. I think he's the perfect example. Um, up until this season, it, my whole fun mantra on Twitter was, Tim Lopes is better than Dylan Moore. Why are we seeing Dylan Moore? Like, Tim Lopes is the guy, right? And the development of Dylan Moore, and we, we saw last year, 
with more. It wasn't hitting for average, but we saw the power potential and that's obviously what Seattle liked there. And they've done some things with him. And, you know, before he went on the IL, he was obviously very, very good. And it's a small sample, but you can see, um, you can see the sustainability uh, in what Dylan Moore has done. And, and that sign, that, that sign that Seattle can not only do things with arms out of the bullpen and arms that are coming up through their system and, and what they're doing with Logan Gilbert and the confidence they have in their pitching guys, but they can do it with hitters too. Um, I think that's the biggest development of the season, uh, the Dylan Moore uh, story um, because of that, because you're going to have situations with some of their prospects coming up, the Kelnicks and the Rodriguez's and even Lewis at some point, um, Cal Raleigh is, is probably another prime example where they're going to struggle at the big league level and they're going to need that guidance, the guidance that previous regimes were not able to offer the Dustin Ackley's and the Mike Zanino's and the Brad Miller's of the world. You know, Gary, one of the things that uh, I've been trying to push off to, uh, to my tiny audience is that player development does not end once a player gets to the big leagues. You remember when Lloyd McClendon was here, he did not want that, Hey, the players are here. Let's continue to teach them. He wanted players to get to the big leagues and be ready to go and not need, I think the term that Lloyd McClendon used was, well, I don't want to babysit. Right. That's not how major league baseball is. Obviously that's not how it works anymore. And we've seen guys like Joe Madden, uh, Kevin cash, uh, certainly in, uh, in Tampa, uh, kind of take the opposite. And that's been spreading over the last four or five years across major league baseball managers and, and coaching staffs have to be player development staff now. And the fact that we're seeing at that at the big league level with some, some younger players and some players that are a little bit older, like Dylan Moore, who had really never done anything before. It wasn't like Dylan Moore was a first round, uh, draft pick. Uh, it is, uh, it's quite amazing to see and a lot of fun to watch. And, and again, for me, so important. Uh, if you're a fan and, and you're watching this team and you're kind of rolling your eyes thinking, here we go again, they have a great farm system, whatever, whatever. Um, more than that is happening within this organization. And, you know, if you're laying down wagers these days, betting on the Mariners is becoming a lot more fun and, and uh, with a lot more reward than, than risk these days, than, certainly than, uh, than previous regimes. Yeah, you make a great point. We haven't had a chance to talk since this season started. What are kind of your general overall takeaways from what we've seen so far this year for the Mariners? I think uh, another fun thing for me is seeing it has been kind of like Dylan Moore, but it has been the Justin Dunn's and the Justice Sheffield's uh, and specifically those two struggle and then pitch well, and then maybe struggle another time and then pitch well a couple times in a row. I, I, again, I think the work that the, the staff is doing with those young players and, and even the example that somebody like Marco Gonzalez is, uh, is setting for them uh, is so big. And, and there, there's a faction of uh, uh, fan, the fan base that kind of believes anybody that's older and that's making money doesn't belong during a rebuild, including Kyle Seeger. But we're seeing the proof that that's not true. And there are lots of examples. And I, the one I use is Freddie Freeman. Um, cause the Mariners could have shoved Kyle Seager out of the door a long time ago if they wanted to, they could have just said here, you know, Atlanta or Mets or yeah, whoever it was, take a bunch of cash, have them for, you know, half price. So we can save a little money and we can open up a spot for another player that we go get, whether it be Dylan Moore or somebody else. Um, they didn't do that. And there's value to that. And the example that I use is Freddie Freeman in Atlanta. They signed him to a long-term deal pretty much right when they started rebuilding and folks were like, why don't you just trade him for longer term, you know, and while Freeman and Seager are different players, there were different points in their careers at the time, keeping Seager around, whether it be because they really couldn't move him for anything that was worthwhile or because there's actual value in, in keeping him around 
I think it's been big for guys like JP Crawford, you know, keeping D Gordon around, you know, even though you know, he's really struggling, you know, performance wise on the field is big for Shedlong and, and JP Crawford um, and Marco Gonzalez with the pitching step. That's been a fun thing for me to kind of see uh, kind of the melding of the very few older players that are left with the young guys that are still there. I, the one thing I wish we could have seen this year, Gary is uh, Tom Murphy behind the plate. Um, and one of the reasons, you know, Austin Nola was so valuable is that Murphy got hurt and Nola was playing every day, but I, I really did want to see that. And I kind of hope to see Tom Murphy next year work with the Cal Raleigh's and, and the Luis Torres of the world. Um, that's been a lot of fun to see those two portions of the roster kind of mold together. It's mostly young players, but the few veterans that are there are there for a very good reason. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, Kyle Lewis, uh, he's, I mean, the numbers are phenomenal. What are you seeing from Lewis so far this year? I'm seeing a, a, a kid who's, you know, in, in his mid-20s now who went through a ton to get where he is, yeah. but obviously learned a lot along the way. Uh, trusted the organization. The organization trusted him. And he was not afraid to listen to, to people that were helping him. He was not afraid to, to listen to Hugh Quattlebaum. He's not afraid to listen to... Uh, you know, Jared Sandra, he's not afraid to listen to Scott service. And, you know, it, and again, another important thing that the Mariners are doing is everybody's kind of on the same page. You're not hearing uh, this talk anymore about, well, you know, he's being told this from his triple a coach and he's being told this from the hitting coordinator. He's being told this from the major league. There's not a lot of that going on. I mean, we've heard that story a thousand times in a lot of organizations and certainly in Seattle, I think Lewis is getting one message and his willingness to listen and to put in the work uh, and the skill and, and the, uh, the attention to detail uh, that he's proven he has in turning, you know, video work and cage work in the game uh, production is pretty remarkable. And we talk about, um, you know, just a moment ago, we talked about how players that get to the big leagues, they're not done developing. I mean, really never. I remember having a conversation with Jed Lowry several years back. And he said something to me that was, that, that stuck with me. I mean, it's been five or six years since this conversation. And he mentioned that, you know, development's never over. You're going to be a 35, 38, 40 year old and the development's never over. There's always adjustments to make and adjustments aren't just differences, they're improvements. And we're seeing that already. When you see that in young guys, when you see it in Evan White, when you see it in Kyle Lewis, uh, it's even that much more impressive. And we're seeing it in Kyle Lewis in very short order. I mean, this is a player, Gary, last summer in June, July and, and early August, this is, that's not the player we're watching at the big league level right now. And there's, there's a huge difference in what's going on and his willingness to, uh, you know, it's, it's really easy when you're Kyle Lewis, first round draft pick, you've always been really good. You've always been a star of all this ability to get pull happy and just try to hit 40 bombs. Right. And he's, I don't want to say he's given up on that, but he wants to hit and let the power come. That's really hard to get a young player to do. Uh, that's been a lot of fun to watch. Um, we're seeing his instincts in center field. I don't think he ends up staying in center field long-term, but we're seeing his instincts take over and he's playable there. Um, that's also been a lot of fun. I, I do hold my breath every time he slides at home plate, to be honest with you, but he did a head first slide, I believe um, within the last uh, five or six days. And I was very happy to see that you want to roll a wrist over Kyle fine, but yeah. just don't slide feet first. Cause I think, I think the whole fan base holds its breath at that point, but Kyle Lewis has been very, very impressive mostly. And, and it's mostly for the adjustments and how far he's come um, more than it is the numbers, the sheer numbers, you know, how he's gotten there has been the most impressive part. Outside of Tramel, back to the deadline for a second. Uh, who intrigues you the most out of anyone they picked up, including the Walker deal? Mm, uh, Torrance, the, the catcher, certainly. Okay. Um, there's some upside there with the bat. 
Um, the scouts that I talked to thought, Hey, this guy's probably going to come in and right away and can hit 250. And, and that gives you an opportunity to build on what he can be at the big league level without worrying about, well, man, he's struggling so much. And then kind of the shed long conversation, he gets in his head and then it starts to bother his defense and things like that. There's really not much question that he's a pretty good defensive player. Um, and that's going to buy him some time as well. But if he can come up and make enough contact and hit at least 250, they can work on the rest. And there's enough bat speed there to suggest hey, you know, we might be able to see a kid in a year or two hitting 12 to 15 home runs uh, behind the plate. So you kind of dream a little bit and think Cal Raleigh and uh, Luis Torrens behind the plate. That's a really good tandem. They're not, there's not really a, a such thing as a, uh, a catcher, at least in most instances, that's going to catch 140 games a year anymore. You need two that can really play. And uh, the Mariners setting themselves up for a pretty good tandem next year and the year after uh, has me really, really intrigued on, on Torrens, uh, especially at the plate. Really excited to see that. Probably as early as Friday, I think. Yeah. Oh, Church, this was so great. It's been a while. This was fun. Thanks for hopping on. Anytime, Gary. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.